0: Had a little challenge there, but I'm glad we were able to finish on that last song because clearly we had showers today. They're happening as we speak, and we're looking at a passage that deals with blessings. So there's a good song to tie things together for us as we move into God's Word this evening. We do live in a confusing world, don't we? There's a lot about this world that's confusing, and you know why I say that? I'm actually not thinking tonight about where we live in all these strange ideas that float around our culture as if that's natural. Yes, there's a lot of confusion in our culture, but I'm not thinking about that. I, I'm not even thinking about the, the many things that we deal with in our life where we don't have background to understand it. Like, I have no idea how my phone works. I just know it does. It's confusing if I were to try and figure out what it did. I, I'm talking about the confusion that comes when things don't work out the way we expect them to in this world. Of course, there's always the the situation where those who are in rebellion against God, they they prosper through their rebellion, and we know that happens all around us. By and large, those who are the the richest in the world, most powerful in this world, they're, they're rampant unbelievers, and we know that they're resisting God, they're rebelling against God, and yet they seem to be blessed mightily in this world, and that's confusing, but at least in that scenario, the Bible talks about it quite a bit. The Bible addresses that situation. We, we know that their success is temporary. We, we know that nothing they achieve in this life will last eternally. We, we know that they will stand before God and give an account for their rebellion against Him. We know that God, as, as the righteous judge, He'll bring all things into balance, and, and the scales of justice will work out so that ultimately the wicked are punished and, and the righteous are rewarded. So we may find the immediate situation of unbelievers having apparent success frustrating. Really, we shouldn't be that confused by it. I think the most confusing situation that we face is when we see believers succeeding in this life through means that reflect a lack of faith or confusion about God. Let's be honest, some believers do some rather kooky things. That, that's the technical phrase for it. They do some kooky things. and I'm not just talking about immature youth leaders who try to build up their youth group by swallowing goldfish and kooky things like that. I, I'm talking about things that are much more serious. I'm talking about adults who should know better, engaging in, in worldly means in, in attempts to get ahead. And then it looks like their efforts succeed. For example, do you know any believers who check the horoscopes every morning? To, to see how their day will turn out. Um, I hope not, actually, but, but there are believers that do that, that every day they'll check the horoscope to see how they should look at the day. They, they expect the horoscope to guide their life. Believers do this, and some of them seem to have no ill consequences, even though they are going against a number of biblical principles in doing that they, they seem to have no ill consequence in fact that the reason they check it daily is at least in their mind it helps it has worked they've helped them live their life without problems isn't that confusing or how about believers who, who play the lottery or spend time relaxing in casinos pulling the, the handles on the slot machine uh, again, there's biblical principles to indicate that, that these kind of activities are things believers should avoid rather than embrace. And yet, have you ever heard of a believer winning a rather significant amount of money doing that? Do you find this confusing? This evening, we're going to examine a text that presents a rather confusing situation to us. Uh, I told several people this week, this is probably one of the most confusing texts I've hid in Scripture. We're still in our series that, that traces the life of Isaac in Genesis. And for several chapters, as you know, the, the focus has been on Jacob. Jacob is now Isaac's son. Isaac was the generational recipient of the promises that God gave to Abraham. And then in chapter 27, Isaac received, or Jacob rather was the son that received Isaac's blessings. If you have your Bibles, just for review, look at chapter 27, verse 28. God told Jacob, or Jacob, or Isaac, rather, blessing Jacob, and he says, "Now may God give you the dew of heaven, and of the fatness of the earth, and an abundance of grain and new wine. May peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. May masters uh, be masters of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you." These are promises that Isaac's passing on that he had received through God from God had given Abraham, his father. Isaac received them, he passed them on here to Jacob. Jacob employed a lot of deceit to obtain the blessing at this point, and so much so they had to leave his family and flee his homeland from his brother Esau. Esau killed him, or wanted to kill him rather, didn't do it, but he had to flee before that happened. And you may remember, Jacob stops for the night at Bethel as he's leaving the land. He's still within the border land, uh, the borders of the promised land, and, and God meets Jacob. And God directly gives him promises. Look at chapter 28, verses 13 through 15. God says, I am the Lord your God, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Clear promises here that, that Jacob's received. Promises a blessing. That's, that's the context that, that brings us into our chapter. You may remember that at this point now, Jacob has spent 14 years in Paddam Aram with his, his uncle Laban. Uh, he's been there working for his uncle Laban as a dowry for his two wives, Leah and, and Rachel. Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, and Laban tricked him and did a switch off there on wedding night where slid his, his sister Leah into the, the slot of wife and... Now, Jacob had work another seven years after the first seven years for Rachel. In the first part of chapter 30 that we looked at a couple weeks ago, we saw Jacob did not have a happy home life with all of this switching going on and and, and this tension and and conflict that was going. It wasn't a happy home life because he loves Rachel. He he does not love Leah. And that tension increases when Leah is able to have children and, and Rachel was not. Both the sisters ended up giving their servants to Jacob as two more wives, so he's up to four wives now. He has Billah and Zilpah as wives. They served as circuit wives to give him children. But through all that tension and conflict, God is faithfully fulfilling the promises he made to Jacob. He now has descendants. By count, he's up to 11 sons at this point. That brings us to our passage that, as I said, is one of the most confusing texts that we encounter in Scripture. And yet, if you think about it, 14 years have passed, minimum, by the time we get here, because we'll see this, this passage begins with a direct connection to, in, in verse 25 of chapter 30, now it came about when Rachel had born Joseph. So there's direct connection here, linking these passages together, where at the end of that 14 years minimum, maybe even more, by the time he had all these 11 sons, Where he's had 11 sons somewhere between 14 and 20 years, And of all the events that could have happened in Jacob's life during that time, Moses selects this event that's confusing to record for us. Initially, we remember Moses records it for the nation of Israel, this new fledgling nation that's wandering around the the wilderness on their way from being slaves in Egypt to forming up a nation in the, the promised land. Several hundred years, 400 years after these events, of all things Moses could have chosen, he chose this under inspiration to record this, this event. He did it for Israel, but ultimately, because it lands in Scripture, he recorded it for us as well. The passage that we looked at, as I said this time, is pointing us to the blessings of God as it walked us through the birth of, of, of the sons that were born to Jacob. God had promised Jacob that he'd have descendants like the dust of the earth, and now he has 11 sons, with a hint at the very end that there was another yet to come, because remember, Joseph's name means added to. God's blessing Jacob, but he's still outside the promised land. Our our passage this evening picks up right on the heels here, and contains this strange record, but it's a record that, that we should understand as being connected to the fulfillment of the promises that Jacob is already experiencing the fulfillment of what God has, has given here, the fulfillment that, that culminated at the end of the previous section with Rachel's womb being opened in, in the birth of Joseph. The, the passage we're looking at, you see the, the verses on the screen, that naturally breaks into two sections. The, the first section is all direct dialogue between Jacob and Laban as they talk back and forth. That's the first section. Then the second section is entirely third-person narrative with, without any dialogue at all. So we'll Look at these two sections, and we'll just simply call the first section the, the negotiations. The negotiations in verses 25 through 34. Let, let's go ahead and, and listen to those negotiations. Verse 25. Now it came about, when Rachel had borne Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, and let me depart. For you yourself know my service, which I have rendered you. But Laban said to him, If now it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. He continued, Name me your wages and I will give it. But he said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your cattle have fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased to a multitude. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? So he said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. Let me pass through your entire flock today, removing from there every speckled and spotted sheep and every black one among the lambs and the the spotted and speckled among the goats. And such shall be my wages." So my honesty will answer for me later when you come concerning my wages. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be considered stolen. Laban said, good, let it be according to your word. Did you catch here, hopefully you have because I've mentioned it a couple times, but did you catch how Moses immediately turns from recording these births, the 11 sons, to this first mention of Jacob heading back to the land. Eleven sons, the the beginning of the promises are, are coming to fruition, and we hit the very first instance of Jacob says, it's time for me to go home to my own place. Jacob has been living in Haran there for all these years. He's been fulfilling his obligations to Laban. And up to this point, there has been no mention whatsoever of leaving. But here it is. Apparently, the sole reason that he was faithfully working was so they could pay off the dowry he had agreed to, and now he asks to leave. And, and Laban responds with alarm. Most of our English translations supply something in verse 27 to complete Laban's idea. If you look at it, you probably have it in italics or something. Laban says, if now it pleases you, and then you have something in italics. In New American Standard, it says stay with me or, or something of that nature. But in the original, Laban's initial response is left hanging, it, incomplete. If it not pleases you. And he doesn't finish it. It clearly doesn't please Jacob to remain with Laban, but Laban wants him to stay. Laban recognizes that, that he's benefited from Jacob's presence because the Lord, and, and it, he uses the name Yahweh, the, the covenant name of God, Jacob's God, Laban recognizes that Jacob's God is blessing him because of Jacob's presence. Remember, those who bless Jacob will be blessed. Laban is living in that reality under the umbrella of blessing. And he, he connects the dots. Verse 27 should remind us that, of that fact. Laban's experienced it because he's provided refuge for Jacob. He has given wives to Jacob. Now he wants Jacob to stay so that he can keep reaping the blessings. Name your wages and I will give it. In other words, Jacob, you, you can write your own ticket. I, I want to keep you around. It's been good for me. Jacob agrees with Laban's assessment. It has been good for Laban. Well, it's been good for Laban while Jacob's been working for him. Jacob has served faithfully and more importantly though, the Lord has blessed Laban because of Jacob's efforts. The problem in Jacob's eyes is that none of the efforts that he's put forth has resulted in anything for his house. He now has wives, he has children, but he did not have any material wealth to, to show for his years of effort. Still, Jacob is not looking for a handout from Laban. He, he makes that clear in verse 31. When Laban asks, what shall I give you? Jacob says, you shall not give me anything. In fact, Moses is letting Jacob essentially use the very same wording that Abraham used with the king of Sodom back in Genesis 14. If you remember your history with Abraham, Abraham had refused to take anything from the king of Sodom, lest the king claim that he had been the one to make Abraham rich. Abraham wanted to make it clear his wealth came from God alone. Moses uses that same language here, putting in the mouth of Jacob. Jacob was not about to open himself up to a similar claim from Laban either, that all your wealth is because of me. Jacob would not take anything as a gift, lest he found himself somehow beholden to Laban in any way as his benefactor. Instead of taking a gift, Jacob proposes an agreement, and maybe an arrangement, an arrangement to share the benefits that, that Laban experiences going forward. There's every reason to express God will be faithful to his promises. Jacob clearly anticipates God will do what he said. The blessings will continue if Jacob keeps working there. Here's an arrangement to share the blessings. Jacob will take some of the animals as his, but the ones he takes will be the rare of the animals, the ones that are speckled or spotted among the goats and sheep, the ones that are black among the lambs. These animals then will serve as his wages. Plus, there's that a benefit. This arrangement will leave no room for questions as to whether or not Jacob took the proper amount of wages. It, he says simply if there's any white sheep or any non speckled or non spotted goats among the, the future animals that Jacob claims is his, it'll be obvious that, that he has no right to them. If he has anything that is not speckled or spotted or black, then it didn't belong to him. The way verse 32 is worded, it may suggest that Jacob wanted to, to begin this arrangement by going through the, the animals and, and picking out all the speckled and spotted and black that were currently in the flock and take that as initial wage. But, but it isn't clear. What is clear is that Laban quickly agrees to Jacob's plan. From, from Laban's perspective, Jacob's plan should gain him very little. But it should benefit Laban greatly. Typically, there are very few non-white animals born to all white flocks. And and Jacob's proposed beginning with this arrangement that we remove everything that's not white from the flock, that should reduce it down to the point where there's very few of these other animals born. Laban can expect that very few will be born that meet Jacob's description, but, but Laban will continue to have Jacob's full services. Plus, Laban assumes that He will continue, as I said, receive the Lord's blessings by having Jacob serve him. So he expects this arrangement will work to his advantage. Remember, after all, Laban has shown us that that he knows how to turn things to his advantage. Laban is the deceiver who deceived the deceiver Jacob. He knows how to to make things work uh, out for his advantage. He proved that way, slipped Leah in as Jacob's wife when Jacob thought he was marrying Rachel. Laban does not agree quickly because he, he thinks this is an equitable arrangement. He agrees because he considers it beneficial to himself. That really is the dialogue. That That's the negotiations back and forth. And they've come to an agreement. Jacob will keep working, and here's how he'll be paid. He'll be paid from what Laban, being a, a man that's been a shepherd for his whole life, a man who has dealt with sheep his whole life after in a line of people who've dealt with sheep their whole life, expects that if I have all white flock, it will mainly be all white lambs. There'll be very few. Yes, they don't understand recessive genes and everything that, that we understand, but they, they understand observation. White sheep give white lambs. White goats give white, lambs, or white kids. They, they know how it works. Laban expects it to be beneficial. And now the negotiations are com- complete. And in verse 35, Moses begins recording what I'm calling the execution of the plan, the execution here. And as I've already said, what we're about to read is a strange section of Scripture. There's not a bit of dialogue in it, but there is a fair amount of detail. And we've looked at enough passages in Genesis now where even the fact that we have detail given should alert us that there's something going on here worth looking at. Moses isn't one to give lots of detail If he doesn't need to, and yet we have details, and we have detail about some strange actions that Jacob takes, we're going to have to work our way through these actions and try to determine what is it that Moses is conveying to us. But before we do that, let's read the verses. Verse thirty-five. So he, as you just read through, you may be thinking that that's Jacob, but we find in a moment it's Laban. So Laban removed on that day the striped and spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats, every one with white in it, and all the black ones among the sheep, and gave them into the care of his sons, and he put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Then Jacob took fresh rods of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white strips in them and exposed the, the white which was in the rods. He set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters, even in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink. And they mated when they came to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods, and the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. And he put his own herds apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Moreover, whenever the stronger of the flock was mating... Jacob would put the rods in the side of the flock in the gutters, so that they might mate by the rods. But when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's, and the stronger were Jacob's. So the man became exceedingly prosperous, and had large flocks and and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. I mentioned that the way Moses wrote verse 32, it, it was unclear that Jacob may have expected the original group of speckled spotted and black animals be his, it, but it was unclear there. That may have been what Jacob wanted, but that is certainly not what Laban thought should happen. Laban, as soon as the verbal agreement was complete, that we would say that... It, Handshake had barely been completed. The ink wasn't even dry. Laban immediately went out into the flock and removed all the striped and spotted and speckled and black animals and took them away. He was going to ensure that the initial flock that Jacob cared for was absolutely pure white. All the animals he removed, he gave to his sons, and he sent his sons three days' journey to ensure that these non-white males would have no chance of, of interacting with pure white flocks. You may not have thought about it, but, but this is the first time that we have heard that Laban had any sons. When, when Jacob first arrived, Rachel was, was caring for the sheep as a shepherdess. And since that time Jacob has been tending the flocks of Laban, we've been told, we'd never heard about his sons till now. It's entirely possible that Laban's sons have been helping all along, but we've never heard of them. They just suddenly entered the picture now to aid their father in, in ensuring that all the advantage lies with Laban. Team Laban has, has the lead here going into the, the arrangement. As I said, there, there isn't full understanding of ge- genetics in that day, but they, they certainly understand centuries of observation. And they wanted to make sure Team Laban was in good shape. So all the non-white lambs and, and kids would be few, if any, so they took the non-white animals that could have produced non-white lambs and, and moved them far away, ensuring that Jacob would receive as little as possible for his, servant, his service. Laban is not what you would call a generous father-in-law by, by any means. Now we find no record here of Jacob offering any protest about what Laban did. Jacob watched Laban's sons leave with the non-white animals. And then all that Moses tells us is he begins caring for the rest of Laban's flocks. And that's when we get to the strange part. Jacob also takes limbs from various trees, trees that really are known for their, their white inner wood, and he peels off the bark to create stripes in, in the sticks by, by taking these strips of bark off. And, and then he takes the sticks and he throws the, the sticks that now will show the white underline in, in stripes, and he, he throws those sticks into the watering troughs while he waters the flocks because apparently it's when the flocks are being watered that they also tend to mate. He, he flows the, the strips into the, the troughs as the animals are mating and the result are that the flocks mate near these striped sticks and the all-white flocks produce an awful lot of striped, speckled, and spotted lambs and kids. That's what's recorded here. And that's really the part that should bring a a puzzled expression to your face. Or at least, as I would suggest, a serious question should enter your mind. Verse 39 reads as if there's a connection between the animals mating by the rods and producing non-white offspring. Most commentators suggest that there may have been some local ideas about having animals look at a desired result while mating, that that may have what put the, the idea in Jacob's mind. The reality is, I think the commentators are just making it up because they see it here and they, we don't know what's going on, we don't know why he's doing this. We, we... If something like that was true, it's simply a wives' tale or a folk practice that, that says, oh, if you look at what's desired for an outcome, it will produce what you want. We have no way of knowing. There, there's little in the way of, of customs in this era of human history, what kind of practices were going on. Aside from the Bible, we really don't have much. The Bible is the main source that we have, and it only records this particular practice in this one place. What in the world is Jacob doing? throwing these stripes in, striped sticks in the water and somehow causing striped offspring to come out. Anyway, what, what Moses tells us is the sheeps and goats bore young. And Jacob separated the, the white from the non-white lambs and kids. And then when there's two groups of, of young animals, you've got the, the pure white group, and you have the, the I'll call it the non-white group, When he has those two sets of of animals, he faces the flocks towards non-white group as if to show them, here's what you want. This is your desired outcome. These are the young ones you're supposed to bear. That seems to be the implication of him facing them towards them. He also begins to keep the non-white animals separate from the rest of the all-white flock. He, He probably didn't want Laban to come through again. I'm just... Speculating here. He probably didn't want Laban or sons to come through and, and claim some of the animals that were non-white under the guise of, well, we must miss them the first time round, or or well, they're they're mostly white or whatever. Jacob puts them all off to the side as his. As things go on, Jacob begins placing these striped sticks in the water only when the stronger, the healthier animals in, in this all-white flock of Labans is mating. He, he wants the stronger animals to mate near the striped sticks, and when the feebler animals come and those flocks are mating, he removes the sticks. And the result, we're told, is the stronger animals continue to produce speckled, spotted, and black young, while the feebler animals produced all-white young. Even non-sheep raisers know that the stronger animals tend to bear healthy, stronger young, and feebler animals bear feebler young, I expect all of us, even though we're not sheep raisers, we know that. So the result is, as time goes on, Jacob builds up a a strong, healthy, vigorous flock of non-white sheep and goats, while Laban's flock grows feebler and feebler year after year. The final verse of this passage records the summation of, of Jacob's results. From every observable measure, Jacob's plan of mating in front of the sticks was a huge success. He becomes exceedingly prosperous, so prosperous that he even owns camels, which is the most valuable animal of the time. That's the ultimate level of wealth. Moses is informing us in verse 43 that that Jacob rapidly becomes an exceedingly rich man. Jacob sells enough of his non-white animals so they can buy camels and donkeys along with employing female and male servants to care for his flocks. He is wealthy. So now we've worked our way through the text for tonight. Jacob's clearly used, shall I call it unusual actions, a little bit strange even. What are we to make of it all? That is the question that we still need to wrestle with this evening. After all, as I said, at Moses has demonstrated several times they selective in what he chooses to record. And he's had a lot of years of history here that of Jacob they could pick from. Furthermore, Moses records the things that God inspires him to record. All of which are meant to teach this fledgling nation of Israel about who God was, who they were, and what God expected of them. So we can have confidence that this passage, this evening, serves at least one of those three purposes. It either tells us something about who God is, who Israel is, or what God expects of Israel. And then furthermore, the fact that God preserves it implies that there's something that will serve that same purpose for us. There's a lesson for us in the lesson that we find for Israel. As always, the, the overall context helps us observe the, or understand the, the overall lesson. We need to remember what's been happening at this point of narrative. That's why I backed up and did a quick summary here. Jacob is the son to whom the promises have passed. God has promised blessings to Jacob. God has given Jacob wives and children. And now God adds wealth. Or at least we can add wealth to Jacob. So the overall lesson, if you put it in that context, is why I already let slip. God will fulfill his promises. God will fulfill his promises. Now, that's not a real earth-shattering lesson. Well, in a way it is, but, but it's a lesson we've seen many, many times through these narratives. It's a lesson that apparently the first generation of Israelites, the, the ones, remember, heading from Egypt to Canaan, apparently it's a lesson they needed here over and over because we're in chapter 30 of Genesis and we've heard this lesson over and over and over. It was repeated multiple times. In the record of Abraham's life, it's been repeated already multiple times in the record of Isaac's life. And just a little hint, it's not the last time we'll see this record. God will fulfill his promise. Apparently the nation needed to hear that over and over. We may feel like it's overkill, but don't forget. When the nation reaches Canaan, they send the 12 spies into the land, and spies come back seeing that there's challenges in the land. Ten spies say they're too mighty for us. Two spies say we can take them. Which do they believe, the ten or the two? Hmm? The ten. The ten that says, nope, the nations and the land are too hard for us. All this way, with Moses teaching them, God will fulfill his promises. And one of those promises, God will give you the promised land. And by the time they get there, they're like, yeah, we don't think we can trust God with this. Clearly, no matter how many times the lesson that God will fulfill his promise was repeated, the the first post-slavery generation of Israelites, the same generation that saw God spread the Red Sea so they could walk through it, no matter how many times they heard this lesson, it was not enough. Well, in a similar fashion, I I fear that we might discover that, that we need this lesson repeated over and over and over again. God will fulfill his promises. We've heard that time and time again, but do we believe it? When life takes a turn, when, when opposition rises up, when, when things get difficult, when, when things are tedious, when we're in the minority in our culture, when, when friends turned against us, when all these kinds of things happen, do we believe that God will fulfill his promises? Will we be like the second post- Slavery generation that Joshua actually leads into the promised land because they believe God will give us victory when we face challenges, or will we be like the first generation that never learned the lesson? Really, only time will tell. We have to come to the the challenging point, the, the time where we're faced with the decision to know do we truly understand and believe and trust this truth? God will fulfill his promise. That's the overall lesson this evening. Yet I think we can take this lesson a bit further tonight as we think about the details of this episode that that God inspired Moses to record, because this lesson came up many times. It didn't need this strange sticks in the trough stuff to, to bring this lesson out. I think there's more to it, and I think there's really two directions when we think of the text we've looked at this evening in which we can see how we must specifically apply this overall lesson. God will fulfill his promise. He will fulfill them, but first, he will fulfill his promises even if man tries to selfishly hinder him. Even if man tries to selfishly hinder God, God will still fulfill his promises. Selfishness is the defining characteristic of sinful rebellion. Rather than living for God, mankind always is living for self. Rather than concern for other image bearers, mankind's natural concern is for itself. And Laban, in our story tonight, he exemplifies this reality. Everything he does in our verses, everything, for that matter, that we've seen Laban do to this point in his interactions with Jacob, everything Laban does has been for himself. Laban is all about advancing his own wealth, and his own prestige in the community. The reason he shifted or slipped Leah in as to get her married off to Jacob was because he didn't want to have an unmarried daughter in the community. He didn't want her, he needed to marry her off. Now that he's got two daughters that have given him several grandchildren, Laban is still all about Laban. But let's put this reality of Laban into a theological framework after 14 years, I would imagine that Jacob has at some point along the way shared God's promises with Laban at some level. I say that because Laban in our text clearly knows that God has promised to bless Jacob because Laban himself attributes the blessings that he's experienced to Jacob's God blessing him. Laban wants to keep Jacob around because he expects that as long as Jacob is there, the Lord will continue to bless him because God has promised to bless Jacob. Surely, if if Laban knows this much about God and what God has promised Jacob, Laban likely knows that the actions he's taking to severely limit Jacob's wages are contrary to those promises. Yet, even if Laban knows all this, or I should say maybe even if he doesn't know all this. And Laban has no idea that God's promised all these things, even though all the evidence points that he does. But even if Laban didn't know that, he certainly knows that what he's doing by taking everything far away is, is unhelpful and self-centered. If he really wanted to be fair, he'd leave a, a couple spotted male um, in, the, in the flock so there'd be a few lambs coming out spotted. Nope, he's trying to make sure Jacob gets almost nothing. So what we should see when we look at all this by considering Laban and what Moses has recorded, what we should see is that God is unaffected by anything Laban tries. Laban tries everything humanly possible to hinder God's promise to bless Jacob, and Jacob is blessed. He becomes much wealthier than Laban. What we're to see when we read this is the hand of God fulfilling the promises that the God gave Jacob. Laban's selfish efforts, they're no impediment to to God. God simply works around Laban and fulfills his promises. So as we think about Laban's actions and his role here, they help us round out our overall lesson in this one direction. God will fulfill his promises, even if man tries to selfishly hinder him. But there's another direction that I think we can look as well. We, it's important to know God will fulfill his promise even when people try to oppose God. But in the other direction, we should recognize that God will fulfill his promises even if man tries to ineptly aid him. Ineptly aid God. Inept attempts to, to come alongside and help God out. That, that's the terminology I'm using to, to describe Jacob's crazy sticks in the water actions. This idea that if I put these striped sticks in the water and the sheep mate nearby, or the goats mate nearby, we'll have striped outcome. Moses clearly records Jacob's actions for us. In fact, the only other event nearby in in this part of Genesis where Moses gives us this kind of detail is the episode we saw earlier in the chapter about the mandrakes. Remember we looked at a couple weeks ago. Reuben found mandrakes. And Reuben is, is Leah's son. He brought them to Leah. And then both Leah and Rachel believed that the superstition of, of the day, that mandrakes would somehow help with achieving pregnancy, was real. So Rachel negotiates for the mandrakes with Leah. At this time, Leah stopped bearing children. So Rachel negotiates for the mandrakes so that she'll be able to become pregnant, and Leah becomes pregnant. Moses recorded details there to show that God would do what God was going to do. Well, in much similar fashion, Moses now gives us a lot of details about Jacob's sticks. In fact, he gives us even more details about the sticks than he gave about the mandrakes. And yet, much like the mandrakes, Moses never comments on the validity of the superstition. Moses leaves us to to figure out for ourselves what is going on, what is valid here. At the same time, Moses does, I'll use the word nudge us. Moses nudges us toward the conclusion that we should make. Some of our English versions make it just a little bit obscure, but I want you to look closely at verse 30. If you look closely at verse 30, Jacob tells Laban that the increase he has experienced is because the Lord has blessed him. And then in verse 43... When, when Moses summarizes Jacob's new, uh, the newly acquired wealth, Moses uses the exact same terminology for Jacob's prosperity. It's the exact same wording in the original in verse 43 as Moses used for Laban's wealth in verse 30. And the implication we are to draw is that Jacob's wealth is coming by the same means as Laban's. And we're told where Laban's wealth came from. Laban's wealth came from the Lord. It was the Lord's blessing. In in fact, in the very next chapter, Jacob himself will attribute his wealth to God. So we're to recognize at the end here that even though Jacob tries to push things to his favor by using the sticks in the water, when all is said and done, God is the one who granted Jacob wealth because God had promised that he would do that. Man cannot hinder God, nor can man aid God. Not really. We may work with God, but God certainly does not need our aid. In fact, often our attempts to aid God are inept at best. The good news is God will do what God has promised to do. Period. What God wants from us is trust in him, not inept attempts to aid him. God will fulfill his promises even if man tries to ineptly aid in some fashion. So as we conclude this evening, let's hear the overall lesson from the strange passage, really a lesson that's repeated over and over. God will fulfill his promises. God will. He will fulfill his promises. God will fulfill his promises even if man tries to selfishly hinder. God will fulfill his promises even if man tries to ineptly aid. God will will fulfill his promises. We are to trust him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time we've been able to spend again in your word as we work our way through these sections, even this strange section. Father, we know that there's something here for us. You intend to teach us through this narrative. I pray, Father, that you would help us to learn the lesson, the lesson that you originally gave to the nation of Israel that they failed to learn, but A lesson that, Father, we are in just as dire of need to learn ourselves, that you are God who will do what you have promised to do. And we can rest in that, trusting you. Father, may our lives demonstrate our faith and trust. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.